Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone requires assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training of Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Michelle, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to the Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Colorectal Cancer Treatment Updates, and today's program is supported by an educational grant from Daiichi Sanko, Inc., and I really want to thank them for the support of today's program. Now, we have a lot of you on the call today. There are over 250 participants on this program today. You primarily come from the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities, and we also have international participants from Australia, Canada, Kenya, Nigeria, and the United Kingdom. So really, it's a bit of a global call as well. And um, I really want to thank you for being with us on this, on this call today. Now, um, we are going to, um, before I introduce our first speaker, I am going to ask you a few questions just to get um, a really sense of what you know coming into the program. So I'm going to start. It'll only take about two minutes. And for those of you who are live streaming the program, you'll be able to see the questions. And I'll read the questions to you, and you'll be able to rate them. So on a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand the current standard of care for colorectal cancer, including staging, biomarker testing, and predicting response to treatment. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the role of new treatment approaches, including targeted treatments for colorectal cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the role of precision medicine, including heritable and non-heritable genetic and genomic testing for colorectal cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now there are just two more questions. I understand how to manage treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain for colorectal cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the last question is understand the role of clinical trials for colorectal cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank you all for participating in these questions. It helps us. Uh, to better tailor these programs to meet your needs going forward. It's been very helpful. We've been doing this polling now for about a year, and your responses make a very big difference in our being able to plan programs that really best meet your needs. And now we're going to move on into our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Al Benson III. Dr. Benson is Professor of Medicine, Associate Director for Cooperative Groups, Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, Northwestern University. And Dr. Benson will be addressing updates in colorectal cancer in the context of COVID-19 and its variants, current standard of care, including new treatment approaches, predicting response to treatment, staging, and biomarker testing, precision medicine, including heritable and non-heritable genetic and genomic testing, and the role of targeted cancer therapies. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Benson. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, and thanks all of you for joining today. 
Just to make uh, some comments about COVID, certainly the COVID pandemic has had a profound effect on all of us and, and certainly the medical profession. In terms of colorectal cancer, some of the concerns have been we've noted significant decrease in screening and therefore uh, putting people at risk for delaying intervention uh, for uh, 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 colorectal cancer. We've noticed uh, decline in numbers of people participating in clinical trials and also delays in opening new studies. Uh, we've had significant staff shortages and people have had uh, delays in procedures as well as in some cases actual delay in treatment. Another very important area that uh, has been known for many, many years is the whole issue of disparities and the impact in terms of access to care and how it can affect actual outcomes for people who are diagnosed with cancer, including colorectal cancer. And so there's uh, increasing attention now. We're looking at factors much more closely, such as social determinants of health, which can include economic issues, types of insurance, access to food, as, as some uh, examples. And this is also affecting how we're designing our clinical trials for colorectal cancer, how to make these more accessible for individuals, how to make them more user-friendly, and to also look at the types of data we need to collect, including social determinants of health, because we know this can impact how well people do uh, with treatment. Uh, currently, we're making a lot of effort to catch up on screening, as well as to make sure that patients have the procedures they need. Uh, so this remains a work in progress, but certainly has had an impact. I'm now going to switch a little bit uh, when we talk about uh, uh, this whole issue of precision medicine and how to better select individuals in terms of treatment approaches. And this does also get into the whole area of uh, genomic testing, including people with uh, inherited uh, cancers and treatment approaches such as uh, immunotherapy. So what's very much related to immunotherapy is a very important biological pathway which we can measure in individual tumors referred to as the DNA mismatch repair pathway. In fact, currently pathologists are now routinely reporting uh, on the uh, initial pathology report whether an individual has what's known as uh, uh, deficient mismatch repair uh, proteins. Uh, an, another uh, similar uh, way to report this is looking at what's known as microsatellite instability or MSI tumors. 
Now, these microsatellites are short, repeating DNA sequences across the human uh, genome. And these sequences are very prone to errors. And fortunately, we have genes that can correct these errors, and then the cells can repair itself. However, if a tumor is deficient mismatch repair, or MSI, these errors are not corrected, and tumors can develop. These genes, these mismatch repair genes, can be altered through germline or inherited mutations, or, uh, which is more typical, by non-inherited loss of expression. About 15% of colorectal cancers have deficient mismatch repair, and in some cases, uh, these uh, deficiencies are inherited and referred to as the Lynch syndrome. But as I said, most are not inherited. Most people with deficient mismatch repair have lower stage tumors, so people with stage one, stage two, or uh, stage three tumors. But about 5% of people may have metastatic disease with a deficient mismatch repair tumor. Uh, and these are the individuals where we have more recently learned can respond to immunotherapy. So in immunotherapy uh, uh, includes particularly agents known as checkpoint inhibitors, and they've shown benefit for patients with deficient mismatch repair metastatic tumors who have received previous chemotherapy. And, and this has really transformed the care of, of patients. Most recently, a large clinical trial was reported for metastatic people who had not had previous therapy. And it was a randomized trial that compared uh, the checkpoint inhibitor pembrolizumab, an immunotherapy drug, versus standard chemotherapy. And what was shown is very, very significant benefit for individuals who received the pembrolizumab, and this has now changed the standard of care uh, for these individuals. So it's very important that we know right up front if people have a deficient mismatch repair tumor, and we routinely test this. Now, unfortunately, not everyone does respond to immunotherapy, and this is an area of research to figure out why and how to create regimens that may improve benefit uh, for individuals. Also, for the majority of people who do not have deficient mismatch repair tumors, and unfortunately, these individuals are not likely to respond to immunotherapy, there's a great deal of work trying to figure this out and develop combinations which might trigger the immune system to uh, uh, um, begin to uh, help people uh, and obtain a, a response to treatment. Another very important development is this concept now of being able to measure circulating tumor DNA. And this is important because 
we, we can not only uh, look for uh, important mutations that may uh, help determine uh, selection of given treatment, but currently uh, there's uh, uh, multiple clinical trials looking to see, for example, for people who've had successful treatment with surgery, if after surgery they do or do not have presence of circulating tumor DNA. Because if the DNA is present, the implication is that there are still tumor cells present. And these may be the individuals where we have to focus our attention to provide therapy. Likewise, if circulating tumor DNA is not present, it's quite possible that these individuals will no longer be at risk for recurrence and may not need additional treatment at all. And so we're hopeful that our clinical trials will shed light to improve our ability to select people who should have postoperative therapy versus those who may not need it at all. And so, for example, with stage 2 colon cancer, where people have no evidence of uh, lymph node involvement with uh, tumor cells, uh, most of these individuals will not recur. But there are still people who do, and we need to better select out those individuals uh, at risk. Uh, this utilization of circulating tumor DNA may also be useful for people with metastatic disease to determine if they're uh, uh, effectively benefiting from treatment. And so there are trials uh, looking um, at uh, circulating tumor DNA for these individuals with metastatic disease. Now, another very important marker, uh, tumor marker, that we have known about now for some time is evaluation for RAS mutations. Uh, within the tumor, and the two types we look at routinely are KRAS and NRAS mutations. <clears throat> and this is important because if a person does not have a RAS mutation, what's referred to as wild type, these are the individuals who benefit from anti-EGF uh, inhibitor therapy, the, the two agents we typically use are cetuximab or panitumavab. What's been an enormous challenge is those individuals who have mutated RAS tumors. And it, it's been a, a struggle, uh, despite extensive efforts, finding treatments that will optimally benefit these individuals based on their RAS mutation status. In other words, developing drugs specifically for RAS mutation. There is hope, however, because most recently uh, there are patients uh, in terms of colorectal cancer, it, it, it's, it's not a huge percentage of people, but individuals who have what's known as a KRAS G12C mutation. And now several companies have developed drugs that target this specific mutation. 
Very recently, the FDA granted accelerated approval for a drug uh, which targets the KRAS G12C mutation for lung cancer, and there are ongoing trials in colorectal cancer, which are already uh, showing uh, some uh, response benefit. So this has finally opened the door to much more research, and, and we're hopeful that people will participate in these important clinical trials. There's also uh, 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 another um, biological group. Uh, these are, again, not large numbers of people with metastatic colorectal cancer, but uh, their tumors show what's known as HER2 expression. HER2 expression has already led to specific regimens, notably for breast cancer and stomach cancer. And now for colon cancer, we have evidence that this treatment approach can help people. And one of the newest agents is known as an antibody drug conjugate. And this is a drug called trastuzumab, which does target HER2 uh, can, uh, which is the the drug which which can um, uh, lead to responses for people who have HER2 expression. So th this is uh, also a more recent development and uh, provides um, uh, another selective treatment uh, for individuals. We also have select treatments for those who have a BRAF mutation, which occurs in about 8 to 10% of colorectal cancer patients. And uh, we now have a combination with encorafenib and cetuximab that can help these individuals. So uh, the field is, is continuing to expand. We continue to evaluate people uh, for these very specific biological changes uh, where we can um, identify agents that may provide enhanced benefit. I also want to uh, conclude that one of our concerns is the growing incidence of younger people with colorectal cancer. And this has stimulated research looking at the intestinal microbiome, which includes the, the bacteria that uh, are routinely uh, demonstrated in our intestinal tracts. And this is very important for many reasons, but it's also uh, clear that the microbiome is re related to our immune systems. And so now we're looking at uh, a great deal of research about the microbiome because one of the theories about the higher, the growing incidence of colorectal cancer in younger people is it may be the alteration of the microbiome that has clearly been demonstrated in recent times. This may be related to diet or uh, other environmental factors and is another area of intensive research and we're incorporating study of the microbiome in our clinical trials. So with that uh, brief summary, I'd like to conclude and, and uh, turn this back to Dr. Mesner.
Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Benson. That was a superb presentation, really very outstanding and really covered quite a lot of uh, areas. And I know there'll be a lot of questions to you during the Q&A as well. Thank you so much. Um, and um, so thank you, a very excellent presentation. And our next speaker uh, is Dr. Daniel Ahn. And Dr. Ahn is consultant, Division of Hematology Oncology, Department of Internal Medicine, Mayo Clinic, Medical Director, Clinical Research Office, Mayo Clinic Cancer Center, Phoenix, Arizona, Associate Professor of Medicine, Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Science. And Dr. Ahn will be addressing clinical trial updates, how research contributes to treatment options, managing treatment side effects, symptoms, and pain, the increasing role of telehealth and telemedicine appointments in communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns and follow-up appointments, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, and discussion of open notes. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Ahn. Great. Thank you for the kind introduction. Um, so, you know, a lot of the studies that Dr. Benson kind of alluded to about these advances that we're seeing in terms of the treatment or for colorectal cancer has been a result of really patients like yourselves participating in these clinical trials. And so, over the past, I would say, decade, our increased understanding of colorectal cancer has come about through uh, a lot of preclinical work about understanding about the genetics. And so, when I think about the genetics of colorectal cancer, the way I think about it is that everyone's colon cancer or rectal cancer is unique to themselves, and that has to do with the, genetic pre the genetics of the cancer. So, these are not the genes of the patient, but the genes of the actual tumor. And these genes are what makes each individual's cancer unique to themselves. And so a lot of times I think of these genes as being kind of like the accelerator or similar to the gas of your car. So when you step on the gas for your car to go, these genes are turned on or turned off when they shouldn't be turned on and turned off. And that's what's causing these cancers to grow, metastasize and spread and become resistant to treatment. And so the ideal way to target these genes would be to um, target the cancer would be to target the gene themselves. And so our increased understanding about the genetics of these of our of colon cancer has led to the FDA approval of various agents as well as the ongoing investigation, including drugs that Dr. Benson mentioned, looking at targeted BRAF, which is prevalent in about three to five percent of people. We have KRAS, which is about another forty percent of people, and then when you think about MSI tumors, that's about five to fifteen percent when you're thinking about all comers as well as uh, those with late stage disease. So it's really important. Um, for, I think, patients to continue to be advocates, um, especially by uh, engaging with their provider about seeing what options are available that's unique to their cancer. And, you know, hopefully as we continue to uh, conduct these clinical trials, um, we would, this would lead to the potential approval of a lot of these agents, which ultimately lead to improving outcomes for people with colon cancer or rectal cancer. In terms of one of the major advances that I would say over the past five to 10 years is not only in addition to the treatment, but really in terms of our supportive management. So a lot of times, you know, we hear about the horror stories about people that we know that have gone through chemotherapy and how tough the symptoms that they had to encounter, whether it's nausea, um, you know, pain, whatever the case may be. Um, but what really we've seen a lot of these advances in terms of our understanding about how to treat or manage a lot of these symptoms related to treatment. And so more or less when, you, when patients get chemotherapy now, I think that really a lot of the uh, chemotherapy-associated nausea in particular has really gone by the wayside. And the symptoms uh, tends not to be very problematic as long as 
we proactively treat a lot of these symptoms, especially with some of these more what we call um, metagenic, meaning highly nauseous uh, chemotherapy regimens. And it's really important to address a lot of these symptoms from a multidisciplinary approach. And so I also have a background in palliative medicine, but in our clinics, we tend to engage our palliative medicine colleagues early to help with um, the management for our patients, just because patients do have a lot of symptoms, whether it's anxiety, mood, nausea, constipation, pain, which are all real symptoms that can affect um, not only um, how a patient's feeling, but also from the physical standpoint, but also from the mental standpoint. And so it's very important that we tend to, that we address these symptoms early on in the management of, uh, uh, in addition to the treatment for cancer, because this will lead to, likely lead to just better outcomes in general. What we're seeing a lot, especially over the past, I would say, 18 months with this ongoing COVID-19 pandemic is how do we safely address or appropriately address a lot of the symptoms that we're managing as well as seeing our patients? And so one of the things that, that has, what we've noticed um, has really helped in terms of from the clinical stand, from the clinic standpoint is the role or use of tele, telemedicine or telehealth. And so um, over the past 18 months, ourselves as well as many other institutions have integrated the use of virtual appointments, whether it's just by phone visits or through a video video visits such, such as Zoom, to where we're able to engage our patients in a safe and appropriate manner. Um, while vaccinations are becoming more common and this is becoming less and less of an issue now, now that we're able to provide uh, appropriate treatment in terms of preventing um, some of the concerns with uh, the COVID-19 um, pandemic, uh, I still think it's a very useful tool, especially uh, for patients that may not be able to necessarily travel to an institution, especially as the weather continues to get colder, so those that live in the Northeast or those that are really looking for a second opinion to see whether or not a potential clinical trial may be applicable to them or uh, him or her, I think the role for telemedicine still plays a role. Um, but as we start to transition to more of a normal sense, um, while probably the use is going to become less and less, it's still very a very good and important tool that we tend to use in our clinics. I think um, in addition to using a tool such as telemedicine, uh, going back to the thought about a multidisciplinary approach, um, one of the things that we tend to do a lot in our clinic is not only uh, do patients engage practitioner or advanced provider practitioners play a very important role in terms of the management um, our, of our care. So, uh, you know, our groups are usually, our groups as well as many other clinics are managed by not only nurses and physicians, but we also have nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and medical assistants that play a key role in terms of the management um, and uh, follow-up for all of our patients. And so from the initial point of getting the patient um, in through the door to making an appointment to managing things that we may sometimes not think about as significant, but which are such as um, you know, medication refills, symptom management, um, getting FMLA paperwork, which is something that, you know, that we, that, that often gets pushed to the wayside. All these things are very important in terms of managing um, providing the appropriate and optimal care for each individual patient. I think a lot of times um, some of these concerns that are real concerns that are, are sometimes thought about by patients as being, you know, somewhat not as important are often kind of not spoken by patients until the point where it becomes a significant issue. So I think open communication is very important um, between the provider um, and the patient to where a lot of these questions that may exist um, or that may have that they may that may have get addressed appropriately. And so 
you know, one of the things that has been very helpful, because um, sometimes it's very challenging to get a hold of providers, the use of um, these electronic medical record systems, which are now probably uh, universal at almost every single clinic, to where patients are able to communicate in an effective manner to their provider and their uh, patient, to their uh, provider team, to help address a lot of these symptoms. And so, uh, as part of, uh, at least in our healthcare system, we educate patients about how to send messages, what needs to be addressed immediately, what can be done um, more of in a in a routine manner, and that way, um, all issues, whether minute or very concerning, be addressed in an appropriate manner. Um, in terms of kind of moving forward with telehealth and telemedicine, this is going to be a continuing, evolving. Uh, field, I would say, in terms of its use, um, our clinic are slow. We're slowly transitioning to go to more back to in person, uh, mainly just because more and more patients are now being vaccinated, as well as providers. And so, it seems to become a little bit less of a concern. While it is still a concern, um, and especially for the safety of our patients, but I think um, this may still be again a useful tool moving forward. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Um, that was really outstanding, a wonderful presentation, and, uh, and thank you so much for that presentation. Really superb. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bearden, and Ms. Bearden is oncology dietitian, Michael E. DeBakey, VA Medical Center, and Ms. Bearden will be addressing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. Ms. Bearden? My pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Burden. Thank you so much, Carolyn. I'm glad to be part of today's presentation. Nutrition and hydration are essential, um, not only in the tolerance to your treatment, um, but providing you the energy to do the things that you enjoy. Um, oftentimes, patients come in um, with a new diagnosis and have some issues with bowel function, oftentimes constipation or diarrhea, um, bloating, um, early fullness, not you know, maybe weight loss is included in this. And so it's very important that you talk with your doctor about these changes and, and kind of what's going on with you. A dietitian can be um, a helpful part in your healthcare team. Um, dietitians not only, you know, talk with you about um, you know, foods to eat and those to avoid, but also side effect management and helping you meet the goals um, of your overall care um, by maintaining your weight, um, avoiding any issues with unintended weight loss, um, and additionally helping with potential side effects. Um, sometimes throughout the treatment you can have side effects not only from the cancer itself but from the treatment. Um, these include things like maybe starting to have constipation or starting to have diarrhea, potentially having mouth sores, nausea and vomiting. There might be a change in your taste, a decrease in appetite, maybe an increase in fatigue. And so asking to meet with your dietitian can help you pinpoint some of the challenges that you're having that could be influencing your appetite, your intake, weight changes. And so do ask about connecting with, with them um, when you talk with your doctor. Oftentimes, I, I get a little bit of a mixed message from patients um, that really, you're like, oh, it's okay, I can lose weight, I've got weight I need to, to lose, I've been trying to do this for 20 years. And I always let patients know that 
when you're diagnosed with cancer, it's not the time to work on your weight loss, but rather we need to talk about weight maintenance for a period of time, especially while you're going through the treatment. Um, our body reacts differently into how we manage our, our muscle and our protein stores when um, going through treatment for cancer. And so one thing that we have to be mindful of is that we maintain your lean muscle mass. So even if you're overweight, believe it or not, you can still become malnourished. And so it's very important that um, you're aware of this and that you work with your team to help um, address any concerns or issues. So when your needs are not met, when you're not eating enough and when you're losing weight, um, oftentimes during your treatment, you're losing your muscle. And um, as we age, we lose muscle anyways. But it becomes really important and noticeable whenever you lose it rapidly. It can increase your risk of falling. Um, it can actually make you more tired because our muscle helps with our endurance. Um, and it can start changing the way that your quality of life is. And so we want to we want to address these changes and, and you know side effects as soon as possible. Oftentimes, if you are experiencing side effects that are resulting in this. Um, Talk with your healthcare team. Sometimes there's medications or treatments that they can offer that can help with managing some of these side effects. And then, of course, changes to your diet can go hand in hand with those. Oftentimes when you're not eating enough, you're not drinking enough. And so dehydration is very common. Um, the thing with dehydration is it, it can actually increase your feeling of nausea, increase fatigue, increase constipation, make you feel dizzy and unsteady. And so remembering to drink fluid throughout the day. Fluid is anything that's liquid at room temperature, such as water, milk, sports drinks. And a general guideline is most people need between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day. So treatments like radiation um, can actually increase your fluid needs. It can tend to dry you out a little bit. And so talk with your healthcare team about that. So in closing, there are several members of us on the healthcare team, and we're all dedicated to supporting you through your treatment. So please know how to reach all of us. Um, in communication with us, and the sooner that you reach out, the better. Um, I'm going to close with that and pass the line back over to Carolyn. Uh, thank you so much, Ms. Bearden. That was so excellent. And I know there are always questions for you during the, the Q&A as well, so I know you'll be having questions as well. And I am just going to say a few words about Cancer Care Services. Um, I'm Carolyn Messner. I'm Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. And I just want to review with you um, the national programs that service Cancer Care offers throughout the country. Um, and um, many people um, in the United States will call our HOPE line at 1-800-813-4673. And I should say to all of you that um, tomorrow you'll be getting a survey monkey evaluation, and that evaluation will give you all the resources we mentioned during today's program, any phone numbers or websites or anything else that we give that we think would be helpful to you. Um, so, so just you have that number, though, and you, many people call our helpline, and others who are prefer to go to our website and go to www.cancercare.org. Cancer Care um, has been around for about 78 years now, and we um, are primarily um, an organization that provides oncology social work services. So our, serve, our help to you is provided by oncology social workers. When you call our hope line, one of our oncology social workers will speak to you and see how we may support you, what can we do to help you. And then you will identify your issues and we will try to help you. And I think Dr. Benson mentioned the social determinants of health, and many of our programs actually do and services do address 
those practical and financial issues that you may be uh, coping with, the issues of food insecurity, issues of just having enough money to pay your mortgage or rent, um, or just to have enough really food on the table. That's a big issue that people come to us with. Um, So we we help with those things. We also have a case management staff who will help to link you up to resources. If we don't have them, we'll be sure to link you up to a resource that you can use. And we don't just give you a list of places to contact. um, The staff will actually go with you virtually to an organization and see if they can offer you the help you need. Either might be in your own hometown, it could be your region, or or in a national organization, we will definitely connect you with some help and, and we'll stay with you until we get you the help you need. That's really the most, probably the most important message I want you to know. Um, in addition to that, we do offer online support groups. Many people find those very helpful because they're not time sensitive and to some extent um, they're, uh, they, and we have online support groups for different types of cancer, like for colorectal cancer. We have them for older people and younger people, for caregivers. Um, for young adults. So we do have it for like um, every population and every type of cancer um, that you can think about. Also to help children cope with cancer in the family as well. We have a whole program that does that as well. In addition to that, um, we also offer these workshops, usually about 75 of these per year, on different types of cancers or on different issues um, that will affect each of you, and that we also do offer um, a number of publications that you can access um, from our website. So I hope that gives you a a thumbnail sketch of the services that we offer. Now, before we move on to the Q&A, I just want to ask you just a few more questions. Um, again, uh, be about five questions, and actually, um, you'll uh, again. Um, those of you who are live streaming will be able to see the questions. I'll read the questions. You'll be able to actually rate the questions as well. So the first question is: As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the current standard of care, including staging and biomarker testing, and predicting response to treatment for colorectal cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the role of new treatment approaches, including targeted treatments for colorectal cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of precision medicine, including heritable and non-heritable genetic and genomic testing. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two more questions. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how to manage treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain for colorectal cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And this is the last question. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of participating in clinical trials for colorectal cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank everyone for participating in the questions, um, and this uh, really very helpful to us to understand what you know coming into the program, and now um, to let us know if you've learned during the program so that we can best tailor the programs to best meet your needs going forward. We're planning all of our programs now for 2022, and so your feedback is very, very helpful.
And now we have time for Q&A for our questions. I'm going to ask Michelle to bring all of our speakers on board, and she'll explain to you how to queue up for questions, and we'll take as many of your questions as possible. Michelle? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, please press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star then 1. Question for Dr. Benson. I heard about the side effects of chemo treatments and how they are strongest 48 to 72 hours after treatment. Are there any long-term side effects? Could you comment on this question? And um... Well, yes. Uh, uh, for uh, many of our therapies, um, there are side effects um, which are can occur shortly after administration. It really depends on the regimen and the drug, and we have many, many, many cancer therapies. But for example, one of our commonly used drugs, oxaliplatin, one of the concerns is uh, what's referred to as peripheral neuropathy with numbness and tingling in the hands and feet, and we have to watch very carefully for that toxicity because although it may go away or it may reduce in intensity, it can be permanent. So um, uh, although I would say for uh, most of our agents that we use for colorectal cancer, there are are not um, many long-term uh, toxicities associated. With the area of immune therapy, uh, we have to follow people over long periods of time to make sure there are not long-term effects from immune therapy, and that, that's one of our more recent type approaches. And so this is going to take a study for long periods of time. Excellent. Thank you. Um... And um, a question for Dr. Um, on a latest information on availability and validity of a blood test, blood-based assay to identify colorectal cancer. Yeah, so um, typically uh, in the past, we would use tissue-based assays, meaning we would send uh, a patient's tumor tissue to, um, to get a test tested through um, various platforms that use next-generation sequencing. Um, which would allow us to understand the genetics of the cancer. More and more, there's been a lot of interest in looking at what we call uh, liquid biopsies, meaning collecting blood to capture circulating tumor DNA or cell-free DNA, which would give us a snapshot of the genetic landscape of their cancer. Uh, Oftentimes, we would use this in two scenarios. One would be um, if there was insufficient tissue or inability to get tissue to look at the genetics. Second, we know that the genetics of cancer changes. So as patients go through treatment, uh, cancer does adapt, and sometimes we can identify new genomic alterations, so new genetic changes that may be that may uh, help us understand a little bit about why a patient eventually becomes resistant to treatment. Usually this is more in the case when patients receive targeted treatment. So as Dr. Benson previously discussed about BRAF mutations or HER2 mutations, when patients receive some of these targeted drugs that block some of these genomic alterations, um, tumors can evolve and develop new genetic alterations that overcome um, the inhibi- this inhibition to provide 
another mechanism of secondary resistance. And so those are the two instances where we use some of these blood-based assays. The challenges with some of the blood-based assays is there is limited sensitivity. And so uh, when tumors are uh, uh, not very active or they're not shedding a lot of DNA, um, they can potentially give a false negative. And so in that case, it would be uh, if, if, a, if a blood sample didn't show any kind of genetic alteration, it would probably be imperative to get tissue as well. But um, for now, we, this is part of our clinic um, for the two scenarios that I discussed, and it will probably continue to be used more and more in the future. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you. And a question for Dr. Um, Benson um, from one of our registrants. Do you have any information on treatment or, or of medullary adenocarcinoma of the right colon. Also, what is the outlook for someone diagnosed with this rare form of colon cancer? Well, when there are rare uh, subtypes of a disease, that remains a challenge. There's there's often uh, not uh, a great deal of information in terms of guiding therapy. Uh, however, uh, as Dr. An, you know, was was talking um, about looking at genomic sequencing um, more and more for rare subtypes of diseases, we are looking for genomic subtyping to see if there may be some links to uh, other treatment approaches. Um, but it, it, it's hard to say anything further in terms of, um, uh, you know, uh, large-scale data to guide a treatment approach. Excellent. Thank you. And a question, uh, I guess so, I'll start with Ms. Baird and, and our um, oncologist. I want to weigh in on this as well. But being that Western medical students receive very little education on nutrition and its vital role in preventative medicine, what is being done to get doctors to understand that there needs to be a focus on a patient's diet previous to getting ill? Would you like to comment on that, Ms. Baird, or pass it on to me? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think a lot, I think it's gotten so much better. I think there, the focus on screening annual health, you know, health exams um, for a lot of different, um, uh, you know, cancer sites, you know, breast cancer, cervical cancer, et cetera. Um, I feel like there's there's more conversations with primary care physicians when they're, when they're going in to see them to schedule these annual um, screenings or, or whatever, you know, um, time recommendations there are for these screenings. Each one of them varies. But, um, you know, I think there's more conversation about it. And I think it's also important, you know, patients also saying something. I, you know, it's oftentimes when you go to see your, your physician, it's a very um, uh, short kind of visit. You're there maybe for the one purpose. But so the one time when you go to, to your annual exam for your you know, your primary doctor and saying, you know, I'd, I'd like more information on this. Can you connect me with a dietitian? Um, a lot of times that's a good way to do it is just be an advocate um, for yourself, too. I think, you know, there's so many different things when you go to the doctor that you're trying to, to tackle, and screenings are one of them, but then also sort of those things that you're interested in. I mean, a lot of times patients aren't always interested in that, and so I don't know that it's always, like, hot on the topic of conversations about seeing a dietitian unless there's something that comes up in blood work or something specific. So I, I encourage patients to always ask, always talk with their healthcare team, those 
those disciplines are there for them to help support them. And um, I know when someone's being actively cared for for cancer, they're the team is very integrated and in bringing all of these team members in. But very good point as far as a preventative measure. Sometimes that conversation doesn't always happen. So please, you know, you know, on your own accord, request that because that service is always available for you. Excellent. Thank you very much. And does anyone add anything to that, Dr. Benson or Dr. Ahn, or in terms of medical school education? Or no, I yeah, I totally agree. Excellent. Okay. Um, and another question for one of our participants um, and for Dr. Um, Benson. As an individual who has had IBS and general GI issues, am I more prone to colorectal cancer? Uh, inflammatory bowel disease is linked to the development of colon cancer, and um, that does require. Uh, extensive discussion with an individual's gastroenterologist and monitoring. Um, so uh, many patients with uh, inflammatory bowel, I'm sorry, uh, uh, inflammatory bowel disease or irritable General. bowel syndrome. Yep. Okay. Excellent. It, yeah, I'm sorry, that was inflammatory bowel disease, right? Um, IBS, yes, and also general GI issues. Well, it, uh, um, irritable, irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, is it, not uh, uh, clearly linked to the development of colorectal cancer. Uh, inflammatory bowel disease, IBD, uh, is. So there, there is a difference. But uh, anybody with GI symptoms would, uh, you know, need careful monitoring and determination of the reason why there is uh, abdominal discomfort. And, Excellent. you know, certainly gastroenterologists are well prepared to do that. Perfect. Okay. Um... And then we have another question um, from one of our online participants. Um, um, it's a long question. Let me see if I can if I can uh, make this question shorter. Um, for Dr. Ahn, six months after sigmoidoscopy in 2020 to remove a malignant colon polyp stage one, no spread to lymph nodes. Um, no chemo or radiation. I have motility issues causing pelvic floor and bladder pressure and pain. I've been to pelvic floor specialist and they want to prescribe vaginal estrogen due to atrophy and pelvic muscle tension. Is it safe for me to take this age 67 healthy weight? Um, genetic testing shows no mutation and 32 genes tested. Um, I wondered if you could just comment on this. Yeah, so the genetic testing that she's referring to, uh, the, patient is, the patient is referring to is hereditary. So this sounds like a germline testing, you know, 32 genes. It's probably Amfri or um, another company that did the, some germline testing. So that looks like it was all negative. Um, in terms of taking the medication for, uh, for pelvic wall, this pelvic wall, a pelvic floor dysfunction with the estrogen therapy, that's not an issue. 
Excellent. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. These are great questions. We've ever really these are more questions we've ever had before. Um, up front for Dr. Um, Benson. Um, I'm looking for alternative for colostomy and or living with a bag. That was just a question from one of our participants. Can you comment on that, just that whole concept? Who gets a, who would need to have a, a colostomy and um, what that entails? Well, well certainly uh, th this tends to be uh, much more related to rectal cancer. However, we do have colon cancer patients who present with a bowel obstruction, and sometimes uh, uh, it's advised to have at least a temporary ostomy uh, during recovery uh, from surgery and uh, with the plan to reverse the uh, ostomy. Um, in rectal cancer, that may also be true that uh, a person may need a temporary ostomy um, with plans to reverse. However, there and, and certainly current treatment strategies for rectal cancer, it's a concept called total neoadjuvant therapy where we're giving all therapy, including chemotherapy and radiation prior to surgery, uh, that has uh, often led to avoidance of a permanent ostomy. But there are situations where the tumor is so close to the anal muscles that it would be impossible to avoid a permanent ostomy because uh, those muscles are essential to avoid um, incontinence and uh, uh, and for a, a, a proper cancer surgery th there may be no choice but to uh, uh, result in a permanent ostomy but these are important discussions that need to occur uh, with the surgeon uh, and uh, to ask are there techniques that can avoid a permanent ostomy Excellent. Thank you. And these are excellent, uh, excellent information for our participant to go back to the healthcare team with this information. I have to say this has been an extremely, um, amazingly informative call. Both our speakers have been our speakers have been terrific. Of course, they're wonderful. And our questions from our registrants. These are all questions from our participants. These have been the most amazing questions and covered an array of areas that are of concern to people. Really, um, in much more in depth than we've had um, sometimes in our previous calls. So I really want to thank our participants as well. Now. I, um, I do want to remind all of you that this is a one-hour program and that in keeping with that, I do want to get to some of you who have not had a chance to ask your questions since we do have many more questions in queue. And I, um, so I want to get back to you about that. Um, for those of you who asked a question, for those of you who have a question yet to ask, and for those of you who are thinking about a question, we want you to take each, all of you go back to your treating healthcare team. They know you the best, and take your question and the information you learned today back to them and discuss it with them and see how it applies to you. And that's most important. And then what the next steps will be, keeping in mind what you've heard today. I also want to let you all know that this program will be on replay as a podcast 
Um, it will be up probably by, um, I would think, by Wednesday as a podcast, and you'll be able to listen to it on our Cancer Care website. Um, and we'll send you all information about that as well when that goes up. But to some extent, that's important for you to know because you can then listen to the program at any time. It's up 365 days a year, um, and it'll be up for at least a year, if not longer. So just thought you know that. Also, I just want to review with you again that um, we don't want any of you to feel you're alone in coping with your cancer. First of all, you have your healthcare team, and your healthcare team consists of your oncologists, but also consists of oncology nurses, oncology social workers, financial um, uh, helpers, patient navigators, a lot of different people who can help you, um, dietitians. Um, physical therapists, a lot of people who can help you. And you've heard some of the team talk today, but you just I want you all to know that they're, they're all there in your team there to help you as well. And you also can contact Cancer Care, and we can also help to direct you, both give you the services we offer and also provide services for you that, um, that if we don't have them, to connect you to places that do have those services that you might specifically need. Most importantly, um, it is normal to feel, of course, alone, particularly, I think it's been heightened by the um, by COVID a bit, it's certainly heightened um, by every bit of news we keep hearing about these things that makes us feel a bit more alone sometimes. On the other hand, um, you are simply a telephone call away from those you love and also from contacting organizations for help or calling your healthcare team or having a tele uh, health visit, visit, and you can have your a family member with you if you wish to, and that's often very helpful. And for those of you who are um, who are caregivers from a distance, distance caregivers, you also can sometimes participate in these um, telehealth visits. That can be very helpful as long as it's agreeable to the patient and the healthcare team. That could be very, very helpful. So although it is tempting to feel very much alone, know that you're simply a telephone call or an email or mouse click away from um, information that would be very supportive to you. I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.